Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Stroh. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Hello, and thanks for tuning in this afternoon for Reproductive Left. I have a great interview for you today, and I'm looking forward to sharing our excitement with you all. On Monday, June 27th, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in support of Whole Women's Health, a huge victory for the reproductive rights movement and for access to abortion care. This ruling strikes down the Texas abortion law, which required doctors that perform abortions to have admitting privileges to a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic and would require outpatient clinics providing abortions to spend anywhere from a few hundred thousand dollars to millions to upgrade to ambulatory surgical center standards. We discussed this case in detail on the December 2015 episode of Reproductive Left, which you can find in the archives on weru.org or on soundcloud.com slash Mabel Wadsworth. Joining me once again on today's show to discuss this victory is the executive director of Mabel Wadsworth Center, Andrea Irwin. Andrea became the center's executive director in June of 2015. Before joining the center, she was the legal and policy director at Consumers for Affordable Healthcare, a statewide consumer health advocacy organization where she worked for five years to defend and promote the Affordable Care Act, also called Obamacare. And she helped people access health coverage and health care. Prior to returning to her home state, she worked at several D.C.-based national advocacy organizations such as NARAL Pro-Choice America to fight against judicial nominees to the federal courts who oppose women's health and rights, and the National Women's Law Center to improve women's access to reproductive health care, including public programs like Medicaid to help women with low income. As you will hear in our interview today, Andrea is passionate about reducing stigma of abortion and working to ensure that all women have access to abortion care, no matter their economic resources. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to Reproductive Left. It's been a few months since we've had you on the show. I'm thrilled to be back on the show. So after a long year... A really long year for reproductive rights. There was great news this past Monday. The Supreme Court of the United States ruled in favor of whole women's health and struck down the Texas abortion restrictions with a decision 5-3. First, just tell us about your reaction when you heard the news. Well, first, I was stunned. I was just really wanting to make sure that I fully understood the decision and what it meant. And then I just sobbed. I was so happy and relieved. 
this is such a huge, huge moment in our history and in our movement. And if it's okay, I wanted to share reactions from some of the people in our movement that I really admire because I think that also just uh, emphasizes the significance. That would be great. Okay. So Nancy Northrup of Center for Reproductive Rights, which is the amazing organization that led the litigation team, she said that this case, this decision, renews the promise of Roe v. Wade for the next generation. And then on Rachel Maddow's show, Rachel Maddow said to Nancy, you've changed decades of the political trajectory this week. Mm-hmm. How great. Um, feminist activist and writer Jessica Valenti put it very succinctly, saying, it's finally official, limiting abortion access in the guise of helping women is a sham. Elise Hogue of NARAL said, this is our moment, we'll take it and go into the future, which I love. I love that everyone is celebrating and looking ahead with a vision for the future, because that's what this really is about. It's this moment in time where we can feel optimistic and hopeful in a way that we haven't, that I've never felt. I've worked, um, I've been, I feel like I've been part of the reproductive rights movement since 2000 when I marched uh, in D.C. for the March for Women's Lives is when I really started to get involved. And I I think this is the most excited I've ever felt about what's to come. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about what this really means. So what does it mean for abortion access in Texas? So unfortunately, you know, I wish this meant... It was like waving a magic wand, and suddenly all the clinics would reopen and access would be restored, but it will probably take several years to reopen those clinics and restore access to the to the level that it was previously. There's still a shortage of providers, um, and there's still many other barriers to access, uh, especially for women of color, poor women, and immigrant women. Now, laws like these have been proposed in a lot of other states. How will this ruling impact those states? So this is another aspect of this decision that is really worth celebrating. Uh, It's sort of happening like dominoes in that this week alone, we're starting to see some of the restrictions in other states um, just fall, which is so wonderful. So we've already started to see an immediate and positive impact, uh, first and foremost in Alabama, where the attorney general there admitted that he could no longer move forward with his crusade to get admitting privileges enforced, similar to the one that was struck down. Uh, And that would have forced five of that state's clinics to shut down. And if you watched the documentary Trapped, which I know you have, uh, you're familiar with these amazing clinics and their staff and the high level uh, of care that they provide and the importance of their work. And then in in Wisconsin and Mississippi, there were court orders blocking similar admitting privileges laws that the Supreme Court dismissed um, cases on Tuesday that were um, affecting those laws. And those that was especially critical for Mississippi because there's only one abortion provider in the entire state. And that Uh, clinic, that provider, have been waiting on that decision since February 2015. Um, And again, I want to 
share a quote from a leader I really admire because there are just so many great things about this news. Cecile Richards, the leader of Planned Parenthood, said this decision has opened the door to go state by state, legislature by legislature, law by law, and restore access to safe and legal abortion. And it's pretty exciting to think about that actually happening because we're seeing it already. This was the biggest Supreme Court case about abortion access since Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Can you explain that case a little bit and how this decision impacts the definition of an undue burden? I can. And this this is another response I'm particularly excited to give because... Casey was decided in 1992, and Casey was really a watershed moment in the jurisprudence around abortion access because it really um, limited Roe in many ways um, because it defined an undue burden as a state regulation, and I'm quoting here, that has the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion of a non-viable fetus. The opinion in Casey went further to say that the state has to balance the interests of, um, or excuse me, the court has to balance the interests of the state in protecting women's health and promoting fetal life and balance that with a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy without state interference. So after Roe, which was pretty solidly um, affirming a woman's constitutional right to choose, Casey really uh, dialed that back. And for example, in Casey, the court held that waiting periods were constitutional, that that did not impose an undue burden. And as you know, we've seen many waiting periods imposed since then. Uh, However, in Casey, the court did say that requiring a woman to notify her spouse before getting the procedure was an undue burden. So that's that's what we got out of Casey. Um, And I think what's so fantastic about the whole women's health decision is that it further clarifies Casey and the undue burden standard And it really defines what an undue burden is, because we've been going for years, for decades, and there's just been this question in the minds of legislators and in lawyers and in judges about not really understanding what is an undue burden. And it really opened the floodgates to why we've seen all these trap laws being passed and ultimately implemented. So this case, this decision is particularly strong and will stand the test of time, I believe, because it is so clear about what an undue burden is. The state cannot impose any kind of restrictions that prevent women from accessing abortion if they can't show a benefit. And that's really what happened here. The state tried to make up a benefit. They created what they thought was a benefit, but there was no evidence. And the the whole women's health majority opinion very clearly states that you need data, you need evidence to show that this that these restrictions, these barriers would actually make this procedure safer. And they clearly did not do that. So it's a victory for science and evidence. 
the rule of law, and again, just a very positive outcome. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. Here with me today is Andrea Irwin, Executive Director of the Center, speaking about the recent Supreme Court ruling on abortion restrictions. So you, along with 112 other female attorneys, signed an amicus brief sharing your abortion stories. The brief began with this quote, To the world, I am an attorney who had an abortion, and to myself, I am an attorney because I had an abortion. So why did you choose to share your story for this case, and how did people respond? Friends, family, co-workers, press? So it was a very easy decision to share my story for this case. Um, I was so excited when I found out that Law Students for Reproductive Justice was coordinating this work with, uh, again, the Center for Reproductive Rights, and coincidentally with lawyers from the law firm Paul Weiss in Manhattan, where I had actually worked before I went to law school. And so that just felt very serendipitous in many ways. Um, But it was a no-brainer. I, like I said, about the outcome of this case being such an important moment in our movement and for me personally as my own um, work as an activist. I I think I had a sense as soon as I heard about this brief, it was so exciting to me that this was happening. I work in this world. I work as the director of an independent abortion provider, and so every day I'm doing this work, but for women who are partners in major law firms and judges and law professors to be signing on to this, I felt so honored to be able to put my name alongside them, and it, it just, I had, I just had such a strong feeling of its importance, and I care so much, as you know, about reducing abortion stigma and shame and normalizing the experience for women. So for me, it felt like a really important thing to do. Um, And it was really great because, first of all, I had some friends, some colleagues I've worked with over the years who were also on the brief, a couple who I expected to be. Um, In fact, one of them is a woman who had her abortion at a whole women's clinic in Texas before law school. And when she shared her abortion story in a class in law school that I was in, that was the first time that I'd ever heard someone's abortion story. So I, she's one of my idols (laughs) and uh, her story was included in the brief. And then there were other women too that I had worked with or had admired over the years. And so it was pretty amazing. Um, And then in terms of response, I feel very privileged. Um, Again, I work in a very supportive environment and with great coworkers, and I have great family and friends. So most people in my life already knew I had an abortion. So it wasn't quite as, um, I didn't have as much anxiety about that, but it was the first time in my professional life that I had done that. And I got a really 
enthusiastic, supportive response. It was really incredible, more so than I expected. And uh, I, I'm just very happy with the outcome of the case. And what was so great about the brief is it brought a lot of media attention to the case, again, because of these really high-powered lawyers that were on it. And it's just so basic. Um, there's this idea that women that have abortions are different than, you know, successful, educated, professional women. And that this brief totally flew in the face of that and said, no, actually, Supreme Court justices, <laughs> where are your colleagues, where are the people you went to law school with, where are the people that appear in your court, and without access to abortion, we would not be here doing what we're doing today. So, to me, it's just a way of giving back and paying it forward, and I hope it inspires other people to share their stories when they're ready. And if they are ready to share their stories, where could they do that? Great question. So, as you know, Mabel Wadsworth Center has a fantastic blog called Mabel's Voices, where we create a space for people to share their abortion stories. Uh, however, there are other opportunities as well. Uh, there's some national organizations like the One in Three campaign and some other resources listed on our website. Um, and I think most important, people just tell their own circle of family and friends because that's how we reduce stigma. So this, again, was a huge victory. Um, for the reproductive rights movement, we're all celebrating. Does this mean the work's done? Have we solved the problem of access for abortion in the United States? I wish I could say yes to that question, but then you and I would be out of jobs in some regards, right? <laughs> so, and we both care so much about advocacy, so that would be frustrating. <laughs> um, we love a good fight, right? <laughs> So, much like Roe, when that decision came out in 1973, um, people that do not have um, access are still not able to um, exercise their constitutional rights as easily as people with means. So, again, while, this, while the trap laws that closed clinics had a particular burden on women with low income, um, just if those clinics reopen, those people are still going to have trouble getting to the clinics. Um, and there are still major barriers that we have to work on. Um, you know, yes, there are, there is this domino effect that seems to be happening with some of the other states and their trap laws, but, uh, there's still a huge group of people in this country that do not believe that women should have access to abortion care or family planning, for that matter, and birth control. Um, but what's exciting, I believe, is that there are proactive measures being advanced that can address some of these um, issues that impact low-income women. So, for example, here in Maine, um, Medicaid, which is the state public insurance program, providing health care to people with low income or very little income uh, does not provide 
coverage of abortion care, but it will provide coverage of pregnancy-related care and childbirth, which we don't think is fair. And so we have joined with the ACLU of Maine and Maine Family Planning and Planned Parenthood to sue the state to restore abortion coverage um, for people with Maine care. So that's very positive and proactive, and that's something that's happening right now. As we speak, there are lawyers at the ACLU that are diligently working on that case. Um, And then at the federal level, there's the Each Woman Act, which would provide equal access to women in all forms of insurance, so not just Medicaid, but also uh, requiring states to cover abortion in private insurance. So that's a really exciting option as well. And our congresswoman here in Maine, Shelley Pingree, has signed on to that, which is awesome. But there are still many, many um, state bills that are being considered that are different than trap laws. And while this decision is very strong, it's we don't know yet how it will be interpreted. And it takes time for all of these things to shake out. So one area that I'm really concerned about, for example, is second trimester abortion and access to that procedure. Uh, Many states have already tried to impose 20-week bans, and there's a lot of evidence, again, to show that that has nothing to do with women's health, has everything to do with just stopping people from accessing abortion care when they need it. And as you know, there's a lot of misinformation and stigma around later abortion. So that's just uh, a plug, I think, for people to be reminded about uh, being educated and to consider watching the documentary film After Tiller, which is on Netflix, and which is a really, really fantastic film to help people understand why women need later abortion care. And just going back to stigma in general, Um, I feel like that's the biggest area for us to work on because that really um, applies to all of these issues. That's all the time we have today. Thank you, Andrea, for being on the show. And thank you for sharing your story and sharing your excitement. Thank you. Listeners, don't go anywhere. We will be right back with Ask Mabel with nurse practitioner Lindsay Piper, where she'll answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. Welcome to Ask Mabel with nurse practitioner Lindsay Piper. We have three questions for Lindsay today. The first question, Lindsay, is what is the most effective form of birth control? Well, there are a couple of answers. Um, I think the most effective form, which is 100%, is abstinence. But that's not very fun. (laughs) So um, when I think about um, all of the different options people have, Sort of the party line in the reproductive justice movement is um, the most effective form is the one that the individual is going to use. Um, And so I guess to be a little bit more nuanced or sort of throw some science into there, there's like perfect use and then there's typical use. Um, And typical use is, um, you know, 
with all of the human error that can happen. Um, and so if you want to kind of go down the list of most effective effective to least effective, considering those two aspects, so like perfect use versus typical use, um, I think the highest um, category uh, would be sterilization, so a tubal ligation or a vasectomy. Um, and in that same category, um, there is... Um, uh, IUDs, so intrauterine devices, and then an implant, which um, goes under the um, skin and the arm. And then actually lactational amenorrhea method, um, which is a very little known method, um, is in that category. Um, and so if anybody has questions about what that is, come and see me. I love to talk about breastfeeding. And then you kind of go down, down the scale a little bit. And we're talking about point tenth, like tenths of percents of effectiveness. Um, Although those can add up, certainly, especially if you're talking about uh, population over the course of a year with typical use of like the pill, how many people will be pregnant by the end of the year, blah, blah, blah. Um, so down the line, you have now your depot shot. Down the line a little bit further, you have your um, pill, your patch, your maneuvering. Um, and then down the line a little bit more, you have um, barrier methods and then withdrawal method um, still actually has pretty good effectiveness, which I was sort of surprised when I was doing more reading about um, withdrawal method, um, or people call it pull and pray or whatever kind of, you know, but I think that's pretty challenging um, to use correctly um, for people. So I think that's why it's lower on the effectiveness level. So that's sort of like a brief overview of how I, you know, answer that question when clients ask me. If I was coming into the clinic to get birth control, would I also have to get a pelvic exam or a pap test? The short answer is no, um, and here's why. So uh, not becoming pregnant when you don't want to be pregnant is a totally and entirely different thing than cervical cancer, which is what a pap screening is for. So um, if a provider ever tells you that they need to be combined together, um, I, I sort of think that that's a little manipulative. It's it's a way to get you to do a screening that is also important in order to get what you want, which is the birth control. So um, while I fully support people coming in for their annual exams, for getting their um, scheduled pap screenings, breast and chest cancer screenings, you know, I, I think that um, combining them with birth control is sort of um, – maybe an old way to get people to come in to get those things. Um, when you are getting a medication from a healthcare provider, you do need to be seen annually for things like um, checking blood pressure and checking in on how a method is working for you. So even if you aren't getting a pap test, coming in for your renewal of your birth control is definitely a must. Um, but like I said, not being pregnant when you don't want to and cervical cancer are totally separate things. Okay, and then the last question, I was recently asked by a mother of a teenager um, if it is better for her teen to come to us for her well woman exam or just to continue with her pediatrician. Can you answer that question? Yeah, I think uh, that individual um, would be best served at a place where she feels most comfortable. Um, so that's sort of the overarching answer. Um, I think when you come to a clinic that specializes in reproductive um, and sexual health, you're going to get a little bit more nuanced care surrounding those things. Um, and um, certainly here you'll you'll get our sort of feminist um, 
angle of healthcare. Not that you couldn't at a pediatrician's office, but that's, you know, it sort of would be a pick, you know, luck of the draw uh, as, as far as how that provider um, centers their care. Um, so here you'll certainly um, get answers like you just heard from me as far as like giving you lots of choices and um, sort of the perspective that the individual sort of is going to make the best decision about what is going to work for their life. Um, so that's sort of like what you're going to get if you come to Mabel's. Um, and a teenager uh, can certainly come here. Um, it's We're a judgment-free zone. We don't um, feel the need to involve parents in sexual and reproductive health um, if that's not appropriate, if the client doesn't want that. If they want it, we're certainly happy that they have supportive people in their lives who are bringing them to these appointments because – you know, if you're 16 and making decisions about your body, it might be really nice to have a parent there to kind of hold your hand and or help you answer some kind of tricky questions. Um, so depending on if it's um, how this what the situation is, uh, we're happy to include them or to not if, if it's a, you know, if the relationship is challenging. That's it for today. Do you have a question for Ask Mabel? Simply email us at educate at mabelwadsworth.org. If you want to listen to past episodes of Reproductive Left, you can find us on weru.org in the archives. We're also on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash mabelwadsworth. And you can subscribe on iTunes or through whatever podcast app you use. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center. I'm Abby Strout, and please tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30, right here at Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or online at WERU.org.